Sim with RoboHub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hi, and welcome to the RoboHub podcast. In this episode, we take a closer look at how wearable technology is growing as a form of payment system in China. And as a heads up, we also wanted to tell you about our exciting new Patreon goal, where we are asking you to help us bring you the latest from the HRI conference in Chicago. More info on this later at the end of the episode. From wrist watches and fitness trackers to VR headsets and smart glasses, wearable tech seems to be all the rage at the moment. And it's a big business in terms of sales in China. Our interview Audro spoke to Carl Weaver from Oasis SmartSim about wireless technology, including near-field communications, NFC, and embedded SIM cards, eSIM, in wearable tech and other applications, such as bike rental. Hi, welcome to Robots Podcast. Good morning. This is Carl Weaver. Thank you for inviting me to your podcast. Very happy to be here. Thank you. Would you tell me a bit about your background? And my background is kind of off the beaten track for an American. Uh, I speak, read, and write Mandarin Chinese. I studied Chinese three years in Taiwan, and I worked in Taiwan for 10 years, uh, total 10 years, seven years working and three years studying Mandarin. Uh, then I went back to America, got married, did the old house, wife, car children thing. And then, um, um, surprisingly, in 2008, I got an opportunity to come back to work in China, in Beijing, for a company called Gemalto. And I worked in China for those five years. I'm back now in Seattle, and my job has always been to take Western technologies and try to and sell it, get it designed in to the Chinese mobile device ecosystem, mobile device manufacturing ecosystem, the so-called OEMs, Original Equipment Manufacturers, and ODMs, Original Design Manufacturers. Okay, and so we're going to be focusing on wearable technologies. Yes. Would you, first, wearable technologies have a bad rapport. Yes, oh, this is so true. And that's usually because um, the report uh, request has been given by the editor to a person who has never worn a wearable, and then they're, they're designated to write the report. And so what do they do? They might go to a retail MNO mobile network operator's store, mm -hmm. but normally what they do is they go online, and if one person has written a bad report, they kind of take in bits and pieces of that report and, 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 and mishmash it, and they add their comments, or they find other reports. I wonder if some of these reporters have really done the research and really gone to the stores and really asked the mobile network operators. Because unfortunately, if they have, the problem is in America, the mobile network operators don't really know how to sell the smartwatches. But that is normally the place where most smartwatches are sold in the world today. Uh, because you can touch and feel it, at least. But the uh, salespeople there don't really know how to sell it. They don't really know the demographics. They don't know the type of people who buy a smartwatch. They mm -hmm. just don't know it. Um, and I have figured out that sports enthusiasts will buy a smartwatch 
And also busy business people will buy a smartwatch. And there are other sub-segments like children's wear um, and also uh, for actually the elderly. Um, but the type of smartwatch would be different. But these are the four major segments that I've seen. Um, not even talking about the, the luxury branding aspect of the smartwatch because um, the problem is that any smartwatch that's designed in China doesn't take aesthetics and luxury and fashion as number one. They, it's usually designed by male Chinese engineers and they don't quite understand. You have to design for a unisex type solution where women can participate. Uh, I mean, women can participate in the engineering design phase uh, and then of course the end product is a more unisex solution that isn't so macho looking because women aren't going to buy those kinds of watches. They want luxury fashion and they want more of a unisex, um, not a feminine, but just a unisex approach. This is very important and that's why when I go and visit these smartwatch uh, designers and manufacturers, I tell them the exact same thing. I even tell them, this doesn't look good. You should really redesign it because it's better to have the watch sell and you've delayed it a little bit, but you've made the watch more uh, universally acceptable because women are a large use, uh, user base of smartwatches, uh, of any watch. Mm -hmm. Now, you're focusing on payment within smartwatches. Yes. Will you tell me about this? Well, my career in mobile payment really started in 2008 when I started working for Jamalto promoting near-field communications. Mm -hmm. We are a smart card manufacturer, and Jamalto had the first NFC-enabled, we call it the SWP, NFC SIM card. And my job was to get that technology designed into all the handset manufacturers um, in Taiwan uh, and China. Mm -hmm. And um, I enabled that technology, near-field communications, which is mostly for payment. It can be used for, for other things, but it's usually payment-related. Okay. So, so just tell me a bit about near-field communications. How does it work? So near-field communications is basically two chips. It's a master and slave situation. The master chip um, and the slave chip, they act together. When two come together, they use uh, induction uh, technology, which require you to be within four centimeters for a for an activity to occur. That's when the technology from one chip is transferred electronically, cryptographically, and encrypted technology from one chip to the other. It's very, very secure, actually, but it only occurs between four and ten centimeters, maximum ten centimeters. Mm -hmm. So it also operates in one frequency, that's 13.56 frequency band, and it's also um, full duplex. So I, I cringe when people say it's RFID. What do you mean a full duplex? Back that means two-way, two full duplex. Mm -hmm. And RFID is not no. full duplex. It's also not safe and secure. And it's meant for merchandising. It wasn't meant to have security. Um, so is it two powered devices? It's basically... RFID is only powered on one side, correct? Um, actually... It is powered on two sides, but it's usually a tag on the other side. The device usually has a tag, yeah. and you read the tag. But it also operates in multiple frequencies. It can be strong, and can, it can go a long distance, or it can go, again, a short distance. But it certainly should go the length of a, of a, of a warehouse uh, or a manufacturing facility. Whereas NFC is very proximity-based. That's why they use the term contactless. You, 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 they use the term contactless because you get so close, you're almost touching it, but you're not quite touching it. Proximity payments is another way to say this. Mm -hmm. Okay, now tell me more about payments with this. So there are many different types of mobile payments. I'd like to focus, if you don't mind, on mobile payments. Of course. And mobile payments mean, means what? Actually, it means a smartphone and it means a tablet as well. 
and a smart watch. Mm-hmm. Mobile payment has a near-field communications chip that's on the device side. On the other side, at the point of sale, at the subway terminal, you have to have a, the other Subway side. terminal, for example. Yes. You have to have the other side of the chip. And when one chip connects to the other, you, you transfer the payment credentials. Your payment credentials are stored on your device and transferred to the other device and accepted, encrypted, and then the signal comes back and the turn the door opens it's basically an acceptance method um, and it's split second but actually what happens is it goes out and checks your pay, your um, your payment criteria is up to date you paid your bills uh, and then it allows the transaction to occur mm-hmm. it's allowing a transaction to occur another way to do it is a point of sale device um, in let's say Starbucks mm-hmm. they enable the what we call the EMV that's called Europay Visa MasterCard. They enable the EMV protocol on the point of sale to allow a smartphone to touch the point of sale in order for a payment transaction to occur. In this case, it's a little bit different because it's your credit card details that are in the smartphone or the tablet or the smartwatch, but it's in the smartphone and it goes out and uh, authenticates that your credit card is valid, up to date, you're paying your bills, and it authorizes the payment transaction to occur from the smartphone back to the point-of-sale device in the uh, network of the retail operator. Okay, now tell me a bit about the payment infrastructure in China. It's very, very interesting because um, Visa and MasterCard have a real tough time in China getting their technology um, really entrenched, and it's actually not getting any better. (laughs) It's supposed to have gotten better because uh, there was a WTO trade violation against... um, China, because mm-hmm. China Union Pay. World Trade Organization. Yes, the World Trade Organization, organization um, is the organization that basically tries to open up um, the the markets, especially financial markets in China. Mm-hmm. But what uh, Visa and MasterCard complained was is there's is that the Chinese um, banking ecosystem, the banking network, the government, and Union Pay, not nearly Union Pay, but the banking networks were discriminating against using Visa and MasterCards. Um, inside the country. So they are. It is. They, they no. lost. Yes, yes, yes. Because when you, when, if I'm a Chinese uh, person and I go to a country that does not have a China Union Pay um, payment mechanism on their, uh, on their point of sale device, mm-hmm. I must use Visa or MasterCard. So um, the Chinese government, when they, when they issue a bank card in China, it comes with China Union Pay, but it usually also comes with a Western brand like Visa or MasterCard. When you travel into that country, you use your smart card, uh, you use your credit card with, with NFC technology or maybe still old mag strip, and you make a payment. What happens is, is the payment, when it gets transferred back to China to clear the transaction, it's supposed to get sent to clear the transaction with a Visa or MasterCard clearinghouse. But when it comes back to China, they transfer it to China Union Pay, uh, therefore bypassing Visa or MasterCard, which means to say that you can't claim that transaction, even though it occurred on the point of sale that you enabled in the foreign country using your credit card, but you don't get the commission on that transaction. Oh, I see. That's what's going on. Gotcha. That's not a good thing. Mm-mm. And also, because I spent five years here and I could use my credit card in most places, there's been 
um, you could say it's a deliberate or, or not a deliberate situation where more and more retailers say, I don't want to accept any foreign credit cards. China Union Pay is good enough. Most, this, is our, this, is, this is China. Most people are in, are in China. Most people are Chinese. We don't need, we don't care about Visa and MasterCard. Um, and so less and less retail users are actually using it. You must have a foreign credit card. I mean, you must have a China Union Pay enabled Chinese bank credit card. Otherwise, you have to pay cash. And um, the exceptions, of course, are, are hotels, the airport. Um, those are international places where you see foreigners. But even even in the city of Shanghai, which is very international, you can go to lots of places. They don't accept foreign credit cards, mm-hmm. and they could be a uh, they could actually be um, a shop in a mall. They won't accept it, mm-hmm. and that's crazy. Or a restaurant, and that's crazy. Um, so um, as China Union Pay goes global, they know they must open up the market for financial transactions, financial services, to Visa and Mastercard. They are, but it's a very slow process. It's almost like pulling teeth. Um, but one thing that I have observed happening is China Union Pay is going global, and the transactions occur. It's just think of every Chinese person, and you know when the Chinese go all over the world, they make lots of payments, and they use their credit card. Can you imagine the amount of money that Visa and MasterCard are losing every single year by them not using the Visa and MasterCard to make the transaction now instead of using you know China Union Pay. And there are situations still. Let's say you're going to Egypt and you're going to a tourist attraction in Egypt. There's no way that China Union Pay is going to be there, but there will be either Visa or MasterCard there, um, even in some cases American Express. Uh, China Union Pay is not everywhere, but it is getting everywhere in the Chinese, in the Asian world, um, China Union Pay has been very successful branding themselves. Even San Francisco uh, International Airport, you can use your Union Pay card because the mm-hmm. Chinese pro- approximate there and they buy lots of duty-free goods and they like make lots of and the and the 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 retail vendors like make lots of money. But if they didn't accept China Union Pay, wow, the Chinese people don't always have cash. Mm-hmm. So, so the Visa, Mastercard, Card, and even Amex have an uphill battle in China, and this needs to open up. It needs to be fair competition, fair trade, not mercantilistic, um, tweaked to uh, to the chagrin of the foreign company, to the advantage of the local Chinese um, company. And that's not just in the banking situation. It's very prevalent in the tech space. Mm-hmm. Um, very prevalent. Would you tell me a bit about that? Um, yeah, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and any from, anything from Google is completely banned in China. You can't get to those networks. Uh, but WeChat is all over the world, and including the United States, and it's a good product. Mm-hmm. But WeChat started very humbly with a product that didn't always work. Uh, but I've watched the progression. It's quite a great product, this chat app, they call it. But it really is more than that. It's a mobile wallet in addition to a chat app all put together. Let's see. Would you tell me a bit about eSIM and how this relates to wearable technologies? So in China, you have two types of payment. There's remote payment and there's proximity payment. Mm-hmm. Remote payment is going online and using the browser um, or using the wallet from a company like Alibaba or WeChat. From the wallet online, you scan a barcode, but that has to be online. Once it scans, it scans the wallet or it scans the, through the browser, it scans the wallet and a transaction occurs. But that's all what we call online payment. It must use 3G, 4G technology in order to operate. 
Mm-hmm. On the other side is the technology I was involved in. I just mentioned contactless mobile NFC, near field communications. Mm-hmm. Now, with mobile NFC, the device um, doesn't need to be online for the transaction to still occur because it uses induction. And the way that the, the protocol was designed, the battery can actually be off. Let's say you're in a subway and your cell phone goes off, but you have mobile payment uh, in the subway with your, with your cell phone, uh, but the cell phone lost power. Well, you have no more battery power. It doesn't matter. The NFC will still work. Because of induction. Because yes. of induction. It's Generates very, very a little cool. bit of power. And yeah. Enough power. It's very cool. But the problem is, is in China, 80% of the market is this online remote payment, and only 20% of the market is this contactless near-field communications or proximity payments. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I came here, it was about 1% remote payment, and it was 20 or 30% uh, contactless payment. But I, I, I didn't stay in China, and I also migrated to mobile device security. They put me on other technology. And so all the evangelization work that I did just stopped there because I was a rainmaker. I was connecting banks to handset manufacturers, mobile network operators to chip vendors, um, and other retail vendors. You see, in order to scale any technology in China, you need a rainmaker and you need somebody who can act as a liaison between organizations and treat everyone equally. Yes. Tell me, tell me what a rainmaker is. That's basically somebody who can enable the entire ecosystem of vendors and take a neutral stance mm-hmm. and work with everybody. Gotcha. And that's what I became for Near Field So it's a connector. It connects everyone. Yeah. It's more than that. It's an evangelist for the ah. technology. Because there are a lot of, lots of naysayers with technology. There are lots of naysayers with eSIM. Uh, a year ago when I jumped into the embedded SIM technology, mm-hmm. there were people saying, oh, this is never going to grow. Mm-hmm. So let me, let me divert back to what eSIM is. E-SIM is needed on a smartwatch or a smartphone in order to enable the connectivity for remote payment. Um, on a smartwatch, eSIM is very, very important to uh, allow standalone 4G connectivity, which allows you to make a call and receive a call on your wrist on that smartwatch. Mm-hmm. Without the 4G SIM, you can still make a call if you're Bluetooth connected, tethered to Bluetooth on your smartphone, uh, but the phone has to be with you. What happens if you leave the phone at home and uh, you know you go to the office and, oh, I got my watch, ah, but I can't call or receive... I'm not connected to the watch. Mm. Well, you could you could add Wi-Fi, but it doesn't matter. The Wi-Fi, you need the watch. Yep. With 4G connectivity, you don't need the watch. You leave, uh, so you don't phone. need the phone. You leave the phone home. The watch can call, receive, send text messages. It really is a smartphone on the wrist. That's mm-hmm. what it is. Um, but it's been given a bad name because, as I mentioned before, reporters didn't quite understand the technology, especially with 4G connectivity. Mm-hmm. And no reporter that I've, that I've, very few reporters that I've um, read are talking about payments mm-hmm. on, the, on the smartwatch. Well, that's why I started to evangelize when I came on board in 2016, uh, a previous company doing embedded SIM, and now with Simility, the company that I work for, mm-hmm. Simility Labs. Um, uh, I've been pushing smartwatches, not really for health and fitness, but I've been pushing it for mobile payment. Mm-hmm. Why? Because it is a lifestyle application. Let's see. So what other things do you imagine for wearable technologies? 
I see the, meta- the metamorphosis from of a smartwatch because not everybody wants to put it on the wrist. And it can be quite uncomfortable and sometimes quite heavy to be on the wrist for 24 hours a day. I see it migrating to a lanyard, attached to a lanyard. And that lanyard can be um, sort of like the Star Trek. You know, you just touch a button, Scotty, beam me up. You can program these um, smartphones with numbers, and all you and all you have to do is touch a button, and it'll it'll dial out. It'll dial out, and it could be round or whatever. But it will be some, something that you can take off, or even something you can attach to your belt loop. Not everybody, and me personally, when I had watches in the past, I never wanted to wear it all the time. I felt uncomfortable wearing a watch, but I would attach it to my belt loop, and so I wouldn't lose it. Mm-hmm. When you attach the the when you have a wearable though on your wrist, it is safer. I know lots of people who have had phones physically stolen in the subway. It's very difficult to be, um, you know, be that obscure and that. Um, nonchalant to steal somebody's smartwatch. People around are going to watch. You know, you can't just... Oh, yeah. You can't... You mean, oh, what, you got to cut the person's arm off? So pretty much it's safer when it's on your wrist than it's when in your pocket. There are tons of pickpockets. Um, you could drop it. You could break it. You could do so many things when it's not connected to you. So I see the metamorphosis of wearables um, from the wrist to possibly the belt loop of the, of the pant or even hanging on a lanyard. Mm-hmm. That, that is going to happen. I know that's going to happen. Gotcha. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit about China mm-hmm. and the markets in China. And For eSIM? For eSIM. It's going to explode. You know there's a Mobike bike rental business here that uses a 2G El Cheapo modem yeah. attached to a lock thing on the back of the bike, mm-hmm. but it also has an embedded SIM. Mm-hmm. And uh, because it's using 2G frequencies, nobody wants 2G anymore. But guess what? They're reusing the frequencies that nobody wants. Uh, and it's dirt cheap because the bikes are dirt cheap to use. One renminbi an hour to use when these Mobikes or some of these like some of these other bike rental companies. Mm-hmm. So we see China Mobile uh, pushing uh, an eSIM an eSIM strategy with these uh, bike rental companies, and you can see that at China Mobile's booth. Very very cool. Will it go to other countries? Who knows? But the embedded SIM for rental bike rentals is a, is an interesting market, which you can only see right now in China. Will it morph to other countries? I think so. <laughs> but it'll be there'll be Chinese bikes. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you, you, they'll be all integrated. They'll have an embedded SIM with a four G, a two G, maybe three G um, module, and it'll be dirt cheap mm. because. Renting the bikes is dirt cheap, and that's the way you scale. You can't scale by by asking a person to rent the bicycle for one hour for fifteen U.S. dollars. That will never scale. But one renminbi, any place in the in the world, no matter what, is going to scale and become um, a lifestyle application. So. It's very cool in that the more cities become industrialized, the more people don't want to buy a car and want to use public transportation. Mm-hmm. It actually provides the last mile of, um, of, dra- of, uh, of travel convenience to the consumer, to, the, uh, to the, uh, the, 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 the business person, because people take subways in China mm-hmm. and around the world. What's wrong with a place where you, you, you just store the bikes 
So it needs to be have a little bit more organization. In China, they just you store them everywhere. You, you find them. You find them in the middle of highways. Um, <laughs> it, there needs to be a little bit more organization. But but the eSIM actually allows the technology to occur. The eSIM plus the cellular modem mm-hmm. uh, is what allows the bike to be unlocked. It's the eSIM plus the cellular modem. So we see this in China. This is a huge market. But the eSIM has so many other markets. There's the connected car market. The eSIM will go into the connected car to allow 4G connectivity to add a, a, um, a Wi-Fi modem mm-hmm. to give you Wi-Fi in the car, a Wi-Fi router to give you Wi-Fi in the car, infotainment, normally in the back seat, mm-hmm. telematics in the front seat, letting you have the diagnostics of the, the health of the car. Um, and that's another good application. Uh, that would be on the connected car side. eSIM has three markets. The connected car, the industrial side, where it'll go into CCTV cameras, smart meters to measure gas, water, electric, etc. And then the consumer electronics side, smartwatches, tablets, and eventually smartphones. Smartphones are very sensitive. Um, and they're, they're not sensitive for the eSIM, but they're sensitive for the program that the eSIM enables, the, the GSMA's Remote SIM Provisioning Program. Mm-hmm. That Remote SIM Provisioning Program allows the owner of the device that has the eSIM in it to themselves themselves set up the subscription the operator's profile and allows you you to change depending on the on the subscription you had you'll have more flexible subscription programs occurring mm. so let's say I'm in America and I, I use T-Mobile I want to go to China I can have a, a one day a one hour a one month a one week pro, um, plan that I set up for my device uh, as soon as I power on the device, device when I go to the new country, it is automatically using the highest speed network in that country, and I'm paying pennies, and, and I'm not globally roaming. No more roaming charges, no more removable SIMs to cause trouble, and basically the technology gets turned on, and it's, it's there, it works, it's seamless, mm-hmm. and the operators have to figure out how they monetize this technology, but I think that they will. And I think it will also create new MVNO services. Imagine a, a mobile virtual network operator. And I'm going to give you a great example. So you've seen all these bike rentals here in China. Why doesn't somebody in America create an MVNO, a mobile virtual network operator um, service, just for the bikes? And then I, and then I, I get my services, um, or I can, I can just, I have an app, you download the app, and then there are the bikes, and I'm a and and my and my and my app um, to use it costs ten dollars a month. Let's just say ten dollars a month, and I can use all the bikes in in the city of Seattle uh, to my beck and call. I can use any single bike any time of the day as long as I want, and it only costs me ten dollars. That might not come from a a, a a regular wireless operator. That is going to be very specialized service. It might come from an MVNO. I predict that'll happen. Let's see a year or two from now if Carl's prediction is correct. But for sure in China, uh, this is going to... People in the West are taking notice of these activities going on in China with this this bike rental stuff. Because it's so cool. Um, And it's going to allow um, people to not need a car anymore. You know, there are too many cars in Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, there are too many cars. Mm -hmm. But people need to get around and people need that connectivity. You're going to see people uh, uh, riding bicycles to work uh, uh, with two-piece suits. You're going to see this happening uh, all over the world, or at least it's going to happen in Asia, and it's going to start from China and migrate. This is going to happen because the technology works right now. It's dirt cheap. 
and it works. Mm-hmm. Have you ever used one of these rental bikes? Yes. It's cool, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's just so cool. So um, you need an embedded SIM for that. Uh, and, I, and, and the industrial side that's also used for the embedded SIM, I, I mentioned, it's really machines need, industrial machines need to turn, they need the embedded SIM to turn things on and off. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not always change the, pro, the remotely. subscription remotely. Okay. And it's reprogrammable. Um, and that's the key. But on the, on the consumer side, it's where I normally play right now. Um, but these bikes are not really consumer. They're considered industri- industrial. It's remotely doing something to a machine. So it's considered industrial. It's very cool. I'm really excited How about that. Thank you. You're welcome. And that's the end of today's episode. But if you haven't had enough yet, just visit robohub.org for more robotics-related news, articles, videos, and of course, podcasts. And remember, if you are able, you can now support us on Patreon. The platform allows us to collect regular monthly donations to help us to attend more conferences. And we've just added a new and exciting goal. We'd like you to help us visit the HRI conference, which is an event-focused solely on human-robot interaction research. Our podcast will, of course, always be free, and we wouldn't want anyone to have to skip their morning coffee just so you can make a donation. But if you are able to spare a few dollars a month, we'd really appreciate your support. You can find more information on robohub.org forward slash podcast. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Eason with RoboHub, the podcast for news and views on robotics.